0: listening to A Million Little Gods. I'm Ben Fetterson.
1: And this is Aaron Gowan. So last week we made a joke about the Patriots. It was just sort of an ironical aside or obito dictum. I don't think anybody may have even noticed it.
0: All right. Patriots fan being uh, like a, an identity that you choose for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I just... It uh occurred to me since we've named our two episodes deflations part one and two that that joke had a certain delightful element of happy play mentioning uh you know deflation and the patriots in one sentence was just too delicious as not to comment upon certain events that
0: happened yeah. deflation and the patriots definitely have something in common yeah I mean I'm a Colts fan by the way so yeah we were involved in that as well
1: Yesterday, I was just looking back at all the all the palaver that attended that you know fiasco, and and I found a piece by Andrew Tomasi insisting that just a couple of months after the Patriots debacle, the punter for the Seahawks had committed an even more egregious cheat job with a deflated ball. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he wrote something like like deflated balls equals increased momentum of inertia equals longer kick equals cheating equals not the Patriots, so no one cares. So do you think that's you think that's right? Do you think the Patriots get it? Well, if we're a... going to
0: turn this into sports talk radio, we can. But my, <laughs> recollection, no. my recollection of the event was that the general manager of the Colts w- knew that it was basically common knowledge that the Patriots did this. And he went to the officials and said, hey, can you check to make sure they're not doing it? And they checked. And it, in their determination, they were doing it. Yeah. It's not as if, you know— yeah, okay, and Spygate, you know, maybe lots of other teams use the use video cameras too, but they yeah. got caught doing it. So, you know, yeah. lots of people rob banks, but you catch a bank robber, you know, you're more likely to catch the high-profile bank robber that robs a lot of banks, you know. The John Dillingers of the world get caught, and the average guy with the pantyhose over his head who runs away with $26, maybe he gets away with it, but we don't care that much, I suppose. <laughs> All right, um, the more success you have, the more heat you bring on yourself, is what I'm saying.
1: All right, well, basically the only reason really that I bring this up right now is I want to cheat and put out a deflated episode. Just a small introduction and then the interview, a few musical interludes, and that's it. No effects, no auditory flimflamery. Just punt the ball all the way to the next episode, which will be
0: plenty inflated. There was a lot of us last week, yeah. I noticed. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to take a slightly different spin on it. I'm I'm going to say we're going to inflate this show entirely with our guest. Nicely done.
1: Um, one moment, I need to start recording, and I think I'm recording now. Okay. So, um, are there any things that you want to talk about before we start?
2: Um, no, not that I can think of. It. I think I shot it out all over email. Cool. Um, I guess the only thing is, you know, this is work I did on my dissertation. And so I haven't actually been super active with the race stuff. Hmm. Um, I'm getting back into it. Um, actually, like I have two papers I'm supposed to write that I haven't started.
1: That's Robin O. Andreessen, Associate Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science at the University of Delaware. But she's a philosopher. That's one of the dirty little secrets of academia. The research that people do doesn't always fit neatly into the boxes of the departments and titles, and so a bit of procrustean stretching and leg chopping is necessary to fit the people into their boxes. She definitely works in cognitive science, but her theoretical areas of expertise are the philosophy of science and the philosophy of social science and the nexus of science and public policy. And she's a scholar of race and gender. What I recall and what I think comes across in the interview is her down-to-earthiness. It didn't feel like I was speaking to someone wielding authority. It felt like the sort of invigorating chat you might have with someone while you're on a modestly strenuous mountain hike. And then you'd hop in your Subaru and get some ice cream. I'm not saying she seemed unserious about her work. She's the research director and co-principal investigator for a major grant at her university. I'm saying she seemed as serious as she needed to be. And otherwise uninterested in pretense. By the way, in case you're wondering why I'm using the past tense, I conducted this interview almost three years ago before the podcast was even a university project. It's the way it goes. You make plans, of course, but most things are contingent. So uh, the first question I sent you is so a fuss and, and huge. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't start with that question. Um, but I'll do it. Um, is race a thing?
2: Um, okay. So my answer to that question is, I think it's undoubtedly a thing. Okay. You know, the question is what kind of thing is it? Um, and speaking from a philosopher's perspective, I think it's very clearly a socially meaningful category or a social kind if you want to call it that. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, ontologically it's real and it's socially real because in part it fits into a systematic network that has, um, you know, causal consequences based on your classification, including things like health-based consequences, um, or socioeconomic status. Um, so for sure, I believe strongly that it's a social kind. Um, And I can talk about justifications for that in more detail if you want. But the other half of that, in my opinion, is there's this question about whether race is a biological category. Mm. And as you know, I say it is a biological category, but I want to be very careful about what I say about that, because what I really say is that it being biological is really not the problem that underlies the racism, Um, And so what, you know, kind of my goal with the dissertation was to sort of free up the biology so that people would be more aware that it's not a problem to say a category is biological. It's how we use that information. And there's nothing in the biology that supports these conceptions of race that have been used to underwrite racist practices. Um, So I think that from a biological perspective, if If it's kind of a conditional statement, if the out of Africa hypothesis is sort of an acceptable hypothesis that's scientifically justified, then you have an argument that at least in the historical past, we had racial divisions. And then I also say that, you know, what you need for that is, um, reproductive isolation, or what I really say is reasonable reproductive isolation. Obviously, we don't have pure reproductive isolation. And I think the conditions for that are very minimal in today's culture. And to the extent it exists, it's these little outlier populations like the Laps or possibly the Amish, right? Mm. Um, And so that's why I say races once existed biologically and they were on their way out.
1: If you're not sure what she means by the out-of-Africa hypothesis, that's the idea that human populations evolved in Africa and emerged out in separate waves of populations. Once again, I want to punt the ball down the field. So more on that and the movement of people generally in future episodes.
2: But conceptually, I don't think most of the arguments against the biological conception of race are successful because they focus on a conception of race that's out of date in systematic biology, which is the essentialist conception. Hmm. What I argue in my dissertation is that if you look at systematic biology, they're not classifying um, races based on um, clusters of similarity, right? That's kind of that's the sort of common sense conceptions of race use clusters of similarity. Mm. Um, And if you look at systematic biology, then you see that what's really being used is um, lineages. So Mm. branching in the evolutionary tree. And so that's why the out of Africa hypothesis is relevant because um, it's the idea that, you know, if there's a branching structure in the distant past, then you have a concept of race. Um, and so it's really just a conceptual point more than anything, because ultimately, you know, I'm well in the camp of people who think that the biological conceptions of race that float around in everyday language are completely wrongheaded, mm. right? You know, I have a $3.3 million grant to increase the diversity, racial and gender on campus, right? it's, you know, it's a passion of mine, but the point being that for the biology If this if there was branching in the distant past and the out of Africa hypothesis lends credence to that, then you have a race concept. And what causes the branching? Well, that was geographic separation. Right. Mm. And so I say that's a condition that leads to branching. And so that's why that's relevant. So but clearly populations like the laps don't fit our everyday racial groupings. Maybe the historical groupings when the branching happened historically. If you think about it, what probably happened, if the out of Africa hypothesis is accurate and there was branching in the distant past, then you're going to have all this reticulation. The tree is going to start coming back together and being more, you know, fewer clear cut branches. Hmm. And then you're going to have these small little branches still sticking out as like residuals, and those might be like the laps. Um, so, you know, I think historically it, like I said, if, cause I really want to be clear that, I mean, out of Africa hypothesis right now, I think is probably the mo- more well accepted of the competing views about human evolution, but I don't want to sort of pin my claims on that. But, you know, historically they probably were a lot closer to the groups we use today, right? Cause those are probably the things that gave rise to simple things like skin color and bone structure differences. Yeah. Part of the point of all this is I view it as a positive um, in a way that what has emerged from it is far from our everyday conceptions, because I think it really drives home the point that, you know, if you're thinking about what race would be in biology, this is what it would be. And look how far that really is from how we're using the term today. So race really is a social construct. Of course, yeah. I'm attracted to pluralism about species and I'm attracted to pluralism, likewise, about race, um, in the sense that I think it's possible that we have more than one conception of race floating around. And I've started working on some stuff having to do with um, sort of philosophy of science and public policy. And... I, I would love to write a paper. I'm hoping that one of my two upcoming papers is this paper, where I try to give a good enough justification for pluralistic conceptions of race, in part by talking about how the meaning of race, I think, varies very strongly depending on the context. And we should take advantage of that for public policy purposes. Hmm. Because, you know, I think we want different conceptions of race in different contexts. But that's people don't. Yeah, people
1: don't. Did you did you say people don't like that? Is that I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can imagine people don't like that. Yeah, people like pluralism in theory, but they don't like it in practice very
2: often. Yes, yes. And so the question is, how do you ground that? You know, theoretically. And um, I read this was a while ago, and so I don't have it at the top of my head right now. But I read a few articles in the species pluralism literature that I thought might give me sort of a theoretical background that I can use to bring over into this other debate. And then there's going to be all sorts of empirical stuff, you know, empirical ways of trying to ground this. Um, but that requires the time to do the studies.
1: Mm. Um, you've mentioned pluralism in species as well. And that was one of my questions. How do we define species in the first place? And how should we define Um, species?
2: Well, I think that's, I think we should define it. I think there's more than one definition. Um, I think that um, you know the biological species concept is a very useful concept, and it may be sort of the one that has the most support in the biological community. Um, and it, this is a sort of functionalist argument, and it's partly, you know, John Dupre makes this kind of argument. It's a functionalist argument in the sense that I think that these concepts are so theoretically embedded that they're not going to be useful for the whole range of diversity that exists in the world of life forms, Hmm. diversity of life forms. Um, And so with the species concept, you know, the reproductive species concept is the one that relies on reproductive isolation. um, And that one works pretty well for mammals. There's some, you know, fuzzy boundaries and so forth that you can live with, but it doesn't necessarily make the whole concept junk. Um, But then, you go and you, the reproductive species concept really doesn't work very well for um, plants, for example, and it really doesn't work well for microorganisms. Mm. Um, and so, there's different species concepts out there that people who are in different fields favor because that species concept works better theoretically for the work they're doing. Um, and so, to me, that's sort of an argument for the fact that there's probably more than one type of species concept. Um, Why call them all species? Probably, you know, for two reasons. One is that there's sort of a core, the species concept is this core concept about it being in between, you know, the subspecies and then the genus, right? So it's partially just falling in between two other sort of levels of categorization in terms of its sort of size. Um, But then I think the other reason is, you know, there may be a broader functional concept that brings these all together. I mean, I think of it this way. I I teach intro to cognitive science and, you know, we have these ideas of computation and representation in cognitive science Mm. and there's the computational representational understanding of mind, which is the idea that if you're going to try to understand um, some sort of cognitive process like language production, cognitive science is characterized by giving explanations that sort of go computation plus representation produces whatever cognitive task. And so your t- your task as a cognitive scientist is to identify what the computations are and how they interact with the representations. Well, when you go to flesh that concept out, there's many many ideas of computation, and you know the most obvious are the digital computer versus the artificial neural network type computers. Mm. Those ideas of computation are completely different. But we have this overarching concept of computation, which is just, you know, manipulation of information. It, you know, anyway, long and short, I feel like there's other contexts in which we're happy with this idea that you have this sort of vague concept like computation. And, you know, that means manipulation of information to produce a reliable output Um, and representations are information structures with meaning. But then how you spell that out comes out in like many different ways and depending on what you're doing you may need one way way more than you need the other. And so I think it's the same with species and possibly also with race.
1: Could we find a a kind of common ground that then we could say there, there it is. That's, that's what we mean by race. Anybody who's using the term race, that's what we mean by it.
2: What would it be? Well, I think the answer there is probably like this cluster concept sort of thing where the unifying thing, you have a cluster of things that could be in the sort of overarching concept that ties together the sub concepts. Mm. Um, Cause if you look at the sort of history of the term race, you'll see definitions that rely on things like ancestry. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously in the cladistic race concept or the race concept that I defend. Um, the, you know, you have things like reliance on, um, physical features and, you know, that's fairly core to our everyday conception of race, right? Like skin color is like, you know, that's part of the reason why, you know, I mean, I know we had a history where we, as a country, the United States referred to the Irish as a race But to me, that's sort of confusion and that the Irish were it's so transient that it's hard for me to call the Irish a race, just like what you said about the laps. Mm. Um, And but anyway, you know, part of the reason is, is I don't think the Irish have that same. They look too much like the English.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that seemed that's always seemed like they came from the
2: same continent.
1: Yeah, that use of the word race has always seemed to me almost euphemistic. I think if you had spoken to anyone, even at at the time when that was common parlance, one would have thought, "Oh, well, I do, I, I'm using this word in a very different way when I use the word race in this context than when I do when I try to separate people in that kind of 18th century use of of race of different continents." But even then, uh, why why use that same term? Is it I guess in that way it's used the way we use the word the term breed in some way? But 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 even breed yeah, breed well, certainly yeah, ethnicity, yeah.
2: Because I think that's how the Jews get called a race, too. And I mean, that plus Hitler, of course, but okay, yeah. um, I think that uses ethnicity, and that's a, whole, that's a whole can of worms that I haven't tackled um, because some people want the words to be interchangeable, and other people view them as very distinct. And my intuition is that there's a difference, but you know, if you actually try to spell it out, which I once tried— I didn't feel it was actually that doable.
1: Yeah. I'm going to go back to not very long. I'm just going to make, a, make a, an analogy here. Um, I'm going to distinguish it's not a Venn diagram definition. That is, I couldn't find a, a kind of common center to all of these things, but rather it's a cluster where maybe the two individual units inside this cluster wouldn't have any overlap whatsoever nevertheless they fall inside the cluster is that the case with race is that exactly
2: race? Yeah. exactly so it may be the case that one race concept draws from some parts of that cluster and a different race concept draws from different parts
1: yeah okay
2: yeah that's kind of how i think of it mentally actually this is very helpful to me because it'll help me write this paper i have to write mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What use is the term race in medicine?
2: Yeah, that one's harder. That's the one when I started at the beginning saying this isn't all at the forefront of my mind right now. Okay, so first of all, that question's ambiguous. It is, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Between the ethics and sort of the empirical question.
1: Well let's right? let's stick first with the empirical question and then and then switch over if that's okay. <laughs>
2: That's, total, that's exactly what I was going to do, because okay. I was going to focus on the empirical question. The literature's, uh, in my opinion, a little bit ambiguous on how useful the concept really is in medicine. And I think part of the problem is because medical practice is such that when a patient walks in a room and the doctor's in a hurry, which they always are, um, not as a criticism of doctors, but simply just a fact of life, you know, they're if they're using a sort of statistical um concept, then they're gonna miss things sometimes. But
1: is there something getting is there something getting banged in the back of the Oh chair?
2: yeah, it's my cat. He's clawing on the cat. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. My cat likes to claw on the tablecloth. <laughs> um I you know, I don't I live in a very noisy house, so I don't notice these things. No problem. <laughs> So what I was going to say about the medicine thing is um, I think this is a context where pluralism is dicey because when you walk into a medical office, you're going to have possibly two conceptions of race at work at the same time because suppose you're African-American and you carry certain genes that are associated with that population or Native American, or whatever population you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, suppose there really was some medical thing. There's going to be the social factors, right? So, so if you walk in a room and you're African American, you may maybe more prone to certain diseases due to your social environment. So that's the social conception of race. Sure. But you may also be more prone to certain diseases due to your biological history. The other thing I'm thinking, though, while we're talking about it is, you know, the NIH requires that any NIH grant-funded research collect their data and report based on race. And there they're using the government categories. Now, there I can kind of see – I see the criticisms, and I agree with many of them. But from a sort of policy social justice purpose – it may be very useful to collect data for that reason based on race. So that's a different that's like medical research rather than I'm a patient in a doctor's office. Um, and in a medical research context, you may really want to know whether people who self classify as a certain racial population, even if it's mixed race because you're going to check more than one box, that might be extremely useful and, you know empirically justified on the grounds that that's going to be the data that we really need to deal with the fact that like places like Monsanto are polluting certain neighborhoods that are disproportionately African-American and those people are showing up with various diseases, you know, you need to track that information so that you can actually have some sort of grounds by which to correct the mistake. Yep. Yep. That's maybe something else. I'm not sure what's going on in the race and medicine literature, but I think it really tends to focus more on the patient rather than on the question of whether medical research should use that category.
1: Here's a, here's, and this, this is a kind of, it's a leading question maybe. Why the concern about race in the first place? That is why is this such a hot button topic? Let me be clear about which definition or which topic I'm talking about now. Race as a biological category. Why should why should the use of race as a biological category be so controversial? Why can't it just be talked about normally? Why should its, its use as a biological category be so abhorrent to those who would accept? I think most people would accept that there is a social concept of race, as you said at the very beginning. Um, why should it be so controversial? Why can't we just be clearly objective about the fact that there's a question of whether uh, race is a biological category or not?
2: Yeah, I have lots of thoughts on that one because I ask myself that. I, the University of Delaware celebrated Darwin Day and had a series of speakers come on Darwin's birthday and present, and I was asked to present on exactly this question, basically. And you know, in my opinion, it is a little mystifying, Um, but I think part of it is, at least in the classes that I teach, we don't have a lot of students who have a lot of serious biological background. I mean, obviously we have bio majors, but even the students who are coming through the cognitive science major are not super biologically educated, and those that are biologically educated are not educated in evolutionary biology. So I think part of it is simply like lack of knowledge of the science, and so it's really easy to sort of swallow the mythical stories that are going around about why biology is problematic, right? Because the obvious answer is, well, because people have abused biology with these racist conceptions, but I'm surprised at how many people like feminists and race theorists are still arguing that there's no such thing as race because essentialism's false, It's like, what? Like essentialism is not the only game in town Mm. for a classification scheme. But then the other thing I think that's interesting about, I mean, that I think is interesting about this question is I used to teach a class called race, gender, science. And if you read the literature, I used to do a section on sexual orientation and then Chester, stop. That's my dog. (laughs) Pause for a second because I'm going to put the dog away. Okay. The thing that I think is very interesting about that question is that if you look at the literature on sexual orientation or sexual preference, and I don't know which term to use because it kind of depends on where you stand on this debate, but the people who are in that community are very much more open-minded to the idea that biology is not a bad thing, right? So there's a camp of people who believe that it actually is liberating to associate biology with one's sexual preference. And to me that's interesting because biology, if you associate it with gender or race, that's considered to be racist or sexist. Mm. And so that, I think, adds to the question, like, why, not only why do we find biology so problematic, my personal belief is we shouldn't, and sort of I have this campaign to get people to separate the biology from the racism, but then why is it that we have a different attitude towards yet another group that's also been oppressed based on biology?
1: Yeah. It's a yeah, it's true there's a there's a deep irony there isn't there I mean there's this this on one side a, a fear of biology a disdain for it because it's not a disdain not for biology but but for the Supposed abuse of biology on one side, and on the other side, almost a, a need to assert the biology and, and to show that look, there's there's a basis for this. I mean, I, I suppose in that case, it just on, on the one side, biology allows for a kind of justification, and on the other side, it feels like it has at least been in the past abused as a sort of justification. But the use of of biology as a as a foundation was specious in the past. But but now, as you say, that's not the only name of the game. The only game in uh, town. Game in town. That was the phrase you used. Yeah, it's not the only game in town. There there are other ways of thinking about biology that are not essentialist that that allow for different ways of thinking about classification among humans. And then and then that's that's an interesting question that doesn't have to be loaded with all kinds of associations that we put into it.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the fact that we have these. The justification can go one way for one social group and a different way for a different social group just shows you how much the biology is being manipulated rather than it being the biology itself. Yeah. Biological conceptions of race are tied very much to evolution. Obviously, that's a whole can of worms in its own right because, you know, the evolution creationism debate adds to this sort of attitude about evolution. And, um, you know, because I was at UC San Diego, I was at Wisconsin, and now I'm at Delaware – At all these institutions, the undergrads really don't understand evolution and they're not taught it. You know, it's they're taught it if they seek it out, but it's not part of the basic curriculum. And so that's going to add to this sort of misunderstanding. And so then they think they understand evolution. And so they base their beliefs on this sort of faulty science, which makes it easy to perpetuate this system where we think biology is the problem. Could it be that that
1: that? Could it just be a problem of biology and that evolution is a very difficult science to understand? I mean, if I, you know, it's very complex how physics works. But in the end, we can definitely say there's a Higgs boson, right? I mean, like we can say, no, we've defined it now. It's there. It's really there. And in biology, you never get that sort of certainty. And, you know, like everybody sh- pops the champagne and says, "You, we've got we've got races. They're clearly there. It doesn't work like that in biology. Maybe there's something about biology that and, and life science. That is it's just totally different, that, that, that is, is, allows for this kind of abuse because it's so unclear and people don't get it and it's hard to get.
2: The physics example is funny to me because I struggle. I, biology yeah. is very natural to me as a science, but physics is not. Yeah, so it depends on whether you're talking about how easy it is to grasp the concepts versus how easy it is to get a certain conclusion. And certainly the conclusions in the life sciences are always going to be... Well, I mean, this is an overstatement. It's likely that the conclusions in the life sciences are more probabilistic than the conclusions drawn from good research in the physical sciences.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right,
2: because physics and chemistry, on average, you get stronger conclusions. Sure. Um, In part because they seem to be more mathematically based and they're dealing less... I mean, the natural world is more probabilistic, it appears.
1: Mm. Probabilistic. Contingent. Shot through with holes. Ad hoc. The cat claws at the table and the dog's tail bumps against the furniture. The best you can do is make a cluster of concepts with no distinct center. No need to get deflated. Sometimes you have to stretch and chop legs off to make things fit. Sometimes you have to punt.
0: One thing I found really interesting about Robin Andresen's point was uh, where she said that actually things like race reporting requirements can be a really positive thing from a social justice point of view. And she mentioned the case of collecting race data in order to see are certain, for example, certain diseases affecting certain racial groupings disproportionately and not even in the sense of some sort of inborn uh, genetic predisposition, but in things like lead poisoning, right? And that is a, a huge issue of seeing how environmental impacts are reflected differently across these social racial boundaries. And so I wanted to clarify last episode when I said that using the concept of race can save lives, that's what I meant. Uh, And I think she does a really good job of of bringing that out uh, of how important it is. If social race is a thing, if social race is a salient consideration, it's actually kind of irresponsible not to take it seriously
1: right from a from a policy perspective, added to that, I've now encountered several stories, first on the New York Times Daily podcast and then in in an interview on the gist actually uh, with the journalist Priska Neely regarding hypertension in pregnancy and the overwhelming disparity in infant mortality between black mothers and white mothers, and even between black and hispanic mothers, so lots of just rigorous studies into those rates have controlled for all kinds of factors, including education, wealth, and diet, and the neighborhood where the mother lives. And even with all of those controls, there's a massive disparity. So statistically speaking, a black lawyer who's like in perfect health, living in the nicest neighborhood, is more likely to lose her baby in pregnancy than a Latino mother living in poverty. So living as a black woman in America is deleterious to your health.
0: Right. And I think finding these kinds of racial disparities does not inherently point towards a particular kind of cause, Hmm. but it does help highlight a problem that then you would want to look more closely at and see what exactly is going on here, right? Are people getting worse treatment in the emergency room or in the maternity ward? Um, Are people – Uh, less likely to go to certain places to seek medical attention, for example, in the case of Hispanics, maybe because they're worried about immigration authorities, something like that. Um, You'd want to dig down and figure out what's going on in order to fix the problem. Um, And using these racial classifications is going to help you find the problem. Um, So I liked her highlighting that, that racial classification is not solely a mechanism for racial discrimination. It's also a mechanism for social justice. I don't think this comes as a surprise to a lot of people who have actually worked for social justice. Um, things like affirmative action you know, make racial distinctions and racial classifications in order to fix a problem. But I think it's important to keep in mind as we're talking about race that it can be used for bad, but it also maybe you need to use it to rectify some of the wrongs that it's done. It's not something that you can get rid of. Uh, without actually hurting the causes you're trying to advance.
1: I think she's um, particularly strong when she says that essentialism is not the only name in the subspecies categorization game, and there are all kinds of other mechanisms with which we can make categories.
0: Yeah, and also it calls back to my mind a point that Michael Hardiman made, which was that race blindness – is not in itself a force for good, particularly. I always think about the Supreme Court decision that made it harder for uh, universities to do affirmative action. And John Roberts' formulation, somewhat infamously, that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. In other words, seeing efforts to rectify racial disparity as inherently as bad as efforts to promote racial disparity or reinforce it simply because the mechanism being used is racial classification sort of illustrates that kind of shell game where you start with one definition of race, essentialist racialist race, where black people are excluded from higher education because they are seen as incapable of taking advantage of it, and a later application, a recognition of the reality of social race and the disadvantages that that brings with it, and a desire to use that social classification as a means for identifying people who had been underprivileged and making sure that they had a shot at opportunities that they otherwise never would have had. The idea that both of those uses of race, both of those concepts of race, are the same thing. At this point, we can show why that's absurd, why that's wrong, why that's a mistaken use of language. And if we're being charitable, it's mistaken. If we're being a little bit suspicious, we might say that it's intentionally malicious. (laughs)
1: A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production are by Ben Feddersen and me. This episode was edited by Kai Dyke and myself. Our other student producers are Julia Appa, Leonie Bauer, Maren Christoph, Pat Nels, and Anna Picic. You can find us online at a millionlittlegods.com. Write us an email you can contact us via twitter our handle is at amlg podcast our facebook page is facebook.com slash a million little gods and consider writing us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you can we really appreciate it and it would really help us out we'll see you in two weeks for episode six what the what